Well, there was a big pile of questions, <laughs> and we certainly won't get to all of them. Uh, but I did group uh, some of the questions together in some common themes. So first to uh, speak to the question that arose this morning about belief in rebirth and how it's really outside, for most people, the realm of their experience and is it necessary to believe it? And then if there's no self, who gets reborn? The perennial question. Somebody else wrote, what evidence exists to support Buddhist belief in past and future lives? And if we were successful in getting off the wheel of samsara, what would have happened to us? Joined the angel realm, disappeared, disappeared completely from the form of existence. So first to say, um, none of the Buddhist teachings are a question of belief. Um, because whether we believe something or not is really irrelevant. It's much more a question of using the teachings as a pointing to aspects of experience, either which we can confirm you know, through our own practice, through our own experience, or use the teachings to point to something which we might not yet know, but to keep an open mind to, to see, well, you know, so much has been true in what the Buddha taught. Maybe this is too, even if it's outside the realm of what we know. So for myself, I think it's important to emphasize the openness of mind rather than a blind belief or a blind disbelief, you know, which can be just as dogmatic. And rather to rest, well, maybe. Um, when I first started practicing, when I went to India, you know, after the Peace Corps and I was practicing with Manindraji, and really had the first uh, immersion in the Buddhist teachings and ideas of rebirth. I came from a study of philosophy, Western philosophy, and I certainly had no belief or inclination towards that belief. You know, it was quite a foreign concept. And it was interesting for me simply to watch the evolution of how I held the notion. First, as I said, it was just out of respect. Well, you know, it's been true this much, this much, this much, this much. You know, maybe there's something here. And then I met Deepama, you know, one of our teachers who who, <laughs> who was a very extraordinary teacher. <laughs> you know, had great powers of mind, and who said that she actually could see into past lives. Again, this this certainly was not proof, and I had no idea what her experience was, but, okay, you know, maybe there's something here, even if I don't quite understand it. Then, as my practice went on, and I began to have a deeper 
understanding and appreciation of the nature of mind, the nature of awareness, and how consciousness itself is distinct from the body. And as I mentioned earlier, not, not separable from it, but distinct. So then I began to get a sense, well, there is a whole realm of experience which is non-material. And it was clear that the body died, the physical body, but then what about this realm of experience that's distinct from the body? So all of this together just reinforced that quality of openness. And and then lastly, and this again is anecdotal, but there both is research and some personal connection with people who do have sort of memories of their past lives, and there's been studies, you know, going back and researching and checking it out. Um, one of our trainees is a young man from Sri Lanka, you might, somebody who at the age of two, two and a half, started chanting these very elaborate Pali suttas in Pali, age of two, in a dialect of Pali, a way of pronunciation uh, that hadn't been heard like in hundreds of years. As he got older, he started having memories of his life as a monk in the time of Buddha Gosa, which was, I don't know when it was, you know, 300 AD or 300 BC or something like that, a while ago. <laughs> and he started recollecting ancient rune, archaeological runes in Sri Lanka and kind of telling people, well, if you dig here, you'll find this, this, and this. So, who knows? All of this together just kind of helped me be at ease in the possibility. And so that's really what I would suggest, you know, just staying open. And then the question, of course, if there's no self, who's reborn? Uh, given the Buddhist notion of rebirth and selflessness, Carol is going to talk at some length tomorrow night about the teaching of anatta, of selflessness. So I just want to say a couple of words in this. There is no contradiction at all between the notion of selflessness and rebirth. Because rebirth does not mean that there is an entity, a being, a self, which goes from one life to another. That is not what rebirth means. Rather, it's pointing to a continuity of process which is unfolding in the same way that the process is unfolding within this life. That is, each moment of experience of mind and body conditions the arising of the next, conditions the arising of the next, There is nothing carried over from moment to moment, but each moment imprints the next. So, just as a couple of examples. You plant an apple seed, 
you know, and you water it, and the sunshine, and the seed grows, and it sprouts, and finally becomes a tree, and the tree bears fruit, and then the fruit has new seeds, and the fruit falls to the ground, and the seeds germinate and sprout, and new tree, new fruit. So there's a whole cycle there of what in Buddhism is called the cycle of becoming. This becomes this, becomes this, becomes this. That first seed is not carried into the apple that's on the tree. And in fact, from one seed comes many apples and many seeds. So it's not that anything is carried, but rather it's a process of continual transformation. It's a process of becoming. That's what selflessness means. It does not mean that there is no continuity to the process. It's not random. It's not chaotic. It's not that you plant an apple seed and you don't know what kind of fruit you're going to get. There are laws governing the unfolding process. And there is a continuity to it. It's just that there is no no element, no core, which is carried throughout the process. It's a continuity of changing conditions. This becoming this, becoming this, becoming this. And the understanding of selflessness is that there is no one behind the process. There's no one behind this process of change to whom it's happening. It's not that there's a subject to whom this process of change is happening or occurring, but rather we could say what we call self, conventionally, it really refers to this changing, empty process. Okay. If you have any further questions, you can speak to Carol. <laughs> oh, okay. What happens... Uh, if we were successful in getting off the wheel of samsara, what will have happened to us? Well, it's an interesting question in that it's not framed in the correct way, even though this is how we usually view it. You know, for the last 30 years, I've been giving the example of the Big Dipper. You know, and I'll spare most of you the story again. <laughs> but there's no Big Dipper up in the sky, right? I mean, we see certain stars and we create a concept. And then we see it in that way. But really, there's no Big Dipper. So does it make, make sense to ask the question, what happens to the Big Dipper when we see that there's no Big Dipper? It's like the question doesn't make sense, right? We're simp- nothing happens <laughs> because it wasn't there in the first place. In exactly the same way, to ask the question, well, what happens to the self as it gets off the wheel of samsara? It's the wrong question. It's like asking what happens to the Big Dipper. The self was never there in the first place. And so in that sense, the process, empty of self, 
Now we take a fork in the road, depending on which Buddhist tradition we're talking about. (laughs) Some Buddhist traditions say this selfless process is no longer created. It's no longer fed. We're free of desire. Other traditions say even after the mind is free and liberated, it can go on in a selfless way, motivated by compassion. My suggestion is that we just wait to see. (laughs) Again, it's not helpful, I think, having opinions about things we really don't know, even though there's a strong propensity uh, to do so. Okay, do you have suggestions about working with self-doubt? Well, this is a big and important question, because for many people... Self-doubt is a deeply conditioned uh, pattern in the mind, and it's very debilitating if it's not seen clearly. And I think it can be approached on a couple of levels. On the most immediate and, you might say, practical level, It's seeing that the thought of the thought of self-doubt or the feeling that we might have associated with it is simply a thought. That's all it is. It's a thought that's saying something in particular. But when we're able to see it just as a thought, and we're not condemning it, we're not condemning ourselves for having it, and we're not believing it, it is not a problem. And one way of getting to that place, which I've suggested with other deeply rooted patterns, I think a very helpful way to begin to see through, cut through our identification with them, is to start counting them. Literally, you're a self-doubter. Just in the course of a day, self-doubt 1, self-doubt 2, self-doubt 300, self-doubt 9058, really be mindful, be vigilant enough so that you can count how many there are in a day. One of the things that I think will happen is at a certain number, you're going to start smiling. You will, because you will see that it is just this tape that's playing. It's conditioned by, by something or other in our lives. It doesn't matter. To paraphrase one of the Goldstein laws of practice, if it's not that thought, it'll be another thought. So what do you care? <laughs> We don't have to take them so seriously. But the problem is we've been habituated both to be identified with certain patterns and also to be reactive to certain patterns. Mindfulness is the great gift here. If we can really be mindful, whether it's self-doubt, whether it's judging, whether it's 
whatever, whatever the tape is. You know, a lot of people in interviews have come in and kind of described what I call the self-assessment tape, you know, where the mind is constantly assessing oneself and assessing one's practice. Again, it's just a thought. And the beauty of mindfulness and the, the very great power is that we begin to see thought. We begin to relate to thought as a phenomenon rather than relating always to the content. The content ensnares us out of long habit. But when we see the very nature of a thought, it's as if you hold the question in your mind, what is a thought right, as a phenomenon? That is very interesting because we see that there is nothing much there. We've been tormented throughout our lives by something that has no substantial reality whatsoever. And yet it's a very strong habit. So this is the practice of mindfulness. You just try to catch it as close to the beginning as possible. Self-doubt tape one, self-doubt two, self-doubt For those of you who are working with this particular pattern, just leave me a note at the end of the day tomorrow how many you got up to. Uh, I'd be interested. You know, one person, it wasn't with this particular tape, it was with another one. We were discussing this technique and they came back in the interview and she said how surprised she was at how relatively few times it arose. Because in the mind, it seemed much bigger than it actually was. And it was very freeing to see it's not so much of a problem. So it could go either way. <laughs> you could get up to 10,000 also. Okay. Jesus' primary teaching is often recognized as love. The Buddha's most foundational teaching is impermanence. You know how these teachings are compatible on a mystical level. And during six weeks of metta practice, uh, this is the first time, I'm asking, what is the difference between metta and prayer? I would reframe that first question a bit, in that I think that the foundational... Buddhist understanding is not impermanence, although clearly impermanence is a very key role. But I think the foundational understanding is emptiness. You know, emptiness of self, emptiness of some self-existing substantial entity you know, that's there throughout it all. I was, I was part for quite a few years of uh, Buddhist-Christian dialogues on the, on the Buddhist side. And, uh, out of one of them came a book, for those of you who are particularly interested in this, uh, it's a book called Benedict's Dharma. And it was a group of us, it was four Buddhists commenting on the rule of Saint Benedict, which is the rule for the Trappists and Benedictines. Uh, and it was a very interesting dialogue. 
in those discussions, one of the things that emerged uh, was my sense that on a certain level, love and emptiness are two words for the same thing. You know, and that in Christianity, it's the language of love. And in Buddhism, it's the language of emptiness. But when you really look at the depth of what these terms mean, I think you can come to a place of commonality in that emptiness means empty of self. So when there's no self-reference, that means on that level, there's no separation of self and other. What creates that duality? What creates that dichotomy? If I'm here and you're there, then it's a very dualistic kind of perception or relative. It's not inappropriate. It's appropriate on the relative level, but on a more ultimate level, that distinction disappears. What is the relationship, or what is the expression of that non-separation? The expression of that is love on its deepest level. And by love, I don't mean a sentiment, and I don't even mean a particular feeling. For example, what's your relationship to your arm or to your leg? Would you say, oh, I love my arm, I love my leg? Probably wouldn't say that. And yet, we relate to it as being non-separate. It's a part of us, and so the relationship is one of love. We take care of it, right? We bathe it. (laughs) We feed the body. We do all these things. And so love is being expressed very simply and pragmatically and non-sentimentally as a function of non-separation. And so in this sense, I think, love and emptiness are really not even two sides of the same thing, they're just different, different ways of expressing it. The question about metta being, seeming like a prayer, in one way, it is, you know, or like a prayer of loving-kindness, or a mantra of loving-kindness. But in another way, it might take some care with that. Because the way we use the word prayer in English, and actually different people may use it in different ways, so I'll just speak of one of the ways it is often understood. It's often understood as a prayer to some some being, to a higher being or to to something. Metta is the, the practice of metta is not that. It's not asking some being to bestow something on someone else. But rather, it is the cultivation of a quality within our own hearts. 
So as we're repeating the phrases, whatever they may be, may you be happy, healthy, safe. We're not, we're not in a beseechment, but rather it's the strengthening of this quality of well-wishing, of goodwill. And then that has whatever effect it has. So in that way, it seems a little bit different to me than at least the conventional usage of the word prayer. I've experienced breakthroughs with intervening stretches where it's as if I've made no progress or even like I'm going backwards. Then have an epiphany that seems to pick up where I left off with the, la- left off with the last revelatory experience. It can get quite frustrating when I feel I'm in a slump or needing a break. Your words of wisdom. Not uncommon. I have experienced breakthroughs with intervening stretches where it says, if I've made no progress, or even going backwards. That's how it is. <laughs> <laughs> I used to just uh, one whole stretch, long, long stretch in my practice, where it was just like that. I started framing my experience as work days and reward days. Yeah, and some days it just felt like I was slogging along, and I was just doing the work. And then there'd be a reward day, you know, where it all flowed and it was easy. Ah, oh, this is what it's about. And then back to work. <laughs> and there were many more work days than reward days. <laughs> so I wouldn't judge it. You know, it's, it's really... And it's like anything, you know, if you're learning to play a musical instrument, you know, or learning a sport. You know, how many... T- in in a, a musical instrument, how many hours, if you... You know, do you do you practice the scales? How many how many hours do you practice and you don't have the piece right and it's awkward and whatever? And then you have a time when, psh, you know, it really comes out beautifully. And the same thing in in different kinds of sports. It's not that that our progress in anything is linear. It's not like that in terms of an unbroken slope up. You know, it's up and down and up and down and up and down. But the slope of the curve is going up. I'll just, I don't know that I mentioned this in the hall, but some years ago I was in hiking in um, the island of Kauai in uh, Hawaii. There's a beautiful hike on the North Shore to Kalalau Valley, which is a remote valley about 11 miles in. And the hike is quite rigorous. It's right along the coast, and you're up on top. Did I tell the story? <laughs> so you're up on top, and you know these beautiful, fantastic views of the ocean and the, the whole coastline, and then you go down, and it's into the, to the rainforest, and it's dark and kind of gloomy, and, and then you go back up the next ridge, 
big expanse of view, and then down and up and down. This is over 11 miles. There's many, many, many hours you know, of this up and down. Sometimes it's wide open, sometimes it's really enclosed. It would be easy to think not making any progress. You know, up, down, up, down. You know, clear, not clear. But actually the whole time it was moving forward. And at a certain point, we reach the destination. Our practice is just like that. You know, there are many cycles of up and down, and it's clear, and it's hard, and you're concentrated, and you're not concentrated. If you just keep walking, if you just keep steady, you actually reach the destination. So it's to understand, it's to have a realistic understanding of what the practice is. Then it's easier to surrender to it. You know, you're not in a struggle. You don't have this unrealistic notion that somehow each sitting is going to be more concentrated and clearer than the last. Has anybody's practice been like that? Okay, this is a test sample. You know, here we are, almost a hundred people. No one's. Okay, there were a lot of questions. Uh, on this, this was a whole group on the jhanas. Please explain the jhanas, when and how they're practiced. Please explain the difference between access concentration and absorption concentration. Curious if you would be willing to comment on your views of the pros and cons of actively pursuing jhana. I read an article by the fellow who wrote Crossing the River Ganges. In the article, he discussed common pitfalls retreatants often face, one of them being not developing deep enough concentration on which to have their vipassana practice. And how does one come to one-pointed concentration in compassion practice and still walk, do yogi jobs, etc.? Okay, so for those of you who are not familiar with the term jhana, it's, it's spelled J-H-A-N-A. That's the English transliteration. It refers to a state of the mind absorbed in an object. Now, as with so many other teachings, there is a pretty wide range of views of what the experience of jhana is. And so there are many teachers who teach various ways of attaining it or experiencing it, And they're just talking about quite different experiences. So you should know that. Uh, you know, when you hear the term, you really need to inquire how that particular teacher is using the term, because it may be very different than how another teacher is using it. I knew there was a difference when we had studied uh, some jhana practice with uh, Saito Pandita, uh, basically doing using the Brahma Viharas, you know, metta and compassion as the vehicle. And there are there are techniques for developing that level of one pointedness, and they were pretty. Um, 
Everybody who practiced in that way had very similar experiences. But then I remember Deepama talking about her experience of jhana and Muninja describing it, saying that, you know, in that state, if somebody hits you over the head with a something, with a piece of wood, you wouldn't feel it. That wasn't what I experienced. (laughs) I'm sure I would have felt it. So whether it's a question simply of different depth, or it's really different experiences, uh, this is open to some question. The main, or the, the defining characteristic of jhana and concentration. This is one-pointed concentration where we're taking a single object and training the mind to be steady on it. The difference between that kind of concentration and the kind that is developed in vipassana, where we can get very one-pointed on the breath, but also one-pointed on changing objects, moment to moment, The difference is that in jhana practice, there is a fixed quality of mind. It's like the mind gets... And and it has that feeling of being held in a very fixed way. So there's not um, attention paid to other objects. The concentration in vipassana practice is much more fluid. It can be very concentrated, not distracted, not wandering, right there moment after moment. There's not that sense of fixedness. It's more a sense of flow. Access concentration means two different things. In jhana practice, it refers to that state of mind just before absorption, it's in the neighborhood of, and that's what it's called, access or neighborhood concentration, just about to enter it. In Vipassana, access concentration refers to that time when there's enough momentum of mindfulness and samadhi, of concentration, so that we're in the flow of experience more or less effortlessly. We're not struggling to be present. And an example I may have used before, but you know, if you imagine an arch and you're balanced on the top, but you keep falling off one side or another, and you have to struggle to get back to the top of the arch, at a certain point the arch inverts and it becomes a trough. And you're just balancing at the bottom of it. You still get pulled out, but the mind, the mind automatically drops down to that place of balance. So in Vipassana, that's the access concentration, where it comes to that place where there's enough momentum that the default position is mindfulness, is presence, is undistractedness. Not that we never lose it, but it comes back to that quite effortlessly. So that is a big transition time for us. You know, before that time, there's a lot of struggle in our practice. We're, we're really It's effortful to keep coming back. Once the mind has developed that momentum, then the practice itself gets much easier. 
not always pleasant, but easier. You spoke about Buddhist psychology. Uh, you spoke about Buddhist psychology bringing or adding ethics to Western psychology. Can you comment on this? I think this is a quite interesting question. Um, my experience of Western psychology, and for those therapists and psychologists among you, uh, you can let me know afterwards if I say anything that's not true. But my impression is that in Western psychology, there's an effort to come to an accepting relationship of the different patterns of our mind so that we're not in struggle with them. So we come to some kind of inner ease, inner balance, inner harmony. In Buddhist psychology, it takes it another step. And it's a... It's a tricky step, and somewhat radical. Because in addition to acceptance of whatever it is, there's also a discernment of certain states being skillful and certain states being unskillful. And what does skillful and unskillful mean? It means certain states are the cause of suffering, and other states lead to peace, lead to happiness. It's helpful to make that discernment. So I'm going to get on some tricky ground here, I think. I was teaching a, a retreat at uh, a Trappist monastery in Snowmass, Colorado. It was quite a few years ago. And they had just had some kind of workshop dealing with emotions. And the gist of the workshop was that people should honor their anger. So then, I came in, (laughs) and they told me that. And I understood, I understood the value of that other teaching. But I thought it was mis-expressed. I don't think it's a question of honoring the anger. I think it's a question of honoring the fact that anger is present. Now there's a difference. One is, we do want to honor the fact that whatever is arising is arising. You know, it could be anger, it could be rage, it could be fear, it could be guilt, it could be whatever. So that's that question of, yes, acceptance, be present in an accepting way, in a non-judgmental way, for what's arising, but then taking it a next step and seeing anger as a mind state is unskillful in the sense that when we're identified with it, 
when we act on it, it causes suffering. It causes suffering to ourselves, suffering to others. The same could be said for greed, you know, for delusion. One of the notes was, one of the questions was about, there have been a lot of talks about the aversive types. How about some talks about the greed and deluded types? Uh, I mean, they're all equally unwholesome roots. So I think there's this this very helpful distinction to make because then it suggests to us, okay, regardless of what's happening, we need to be open to it, accepting of it, non-judgmental of it, so there's a genuine experience of what it is, but then the discernment, is this something to be cultivated or is this something to be abandoned? And that's where I think the Buddhist teachings adds a dimension to Western psychology. As I say, I, I may be getting a lot of notes tomorrow, but that's, that's my understanding of it. Okay, this... <laughs> there are enough questions here, like for some hours. There was one big group. I think I understand the path of purification, but I don't understand how it relates to enlightenment. It seems enlightenment requires deep states of samadhi where purification does not. Can you comment? Also, how does the path of purification fit with the development of awareness? In the stages of insight knowledge of what is the path and what is not the path, what is seen as the path and what is seen as not the path, what is stream entry? Please describe your experience with Nibbana. Seriously. (laughs) And if not your experience, then describe Nibbana from a non-theoretical perspective. Okay, so I want to speak a little bit at length uh, to all those questions. One way of understanding the process of purification is that what we are purifying are the forces of greed, hatred, delusion in the mind. That's what's being purified. So in every moment of mindfulness, we could say, that moment is a moment of purification because mindfulness means attending to what's arising without grasping, without condemning, without forgetting, without being identified with it. So every moment of mindfulness, we are purifying the mind of those three forces, which the Buddha said to be the root of suffering. One teacher, uh, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa of Thailand, who's 
one of the great Thai masters of the last century. He talked about, as is referred in the suttas, that one understanding of Nibbana is the mind free of greed, hatred, delusion. So he, he talked about how a moment, the mind in the moment free of greed, hatred, delusion is momentary Nibbana. The mind totally free, when they're uprooted, we could say is complete Nibbana. As the mindfulness gets stronger, as this process of purification builds momentum, as our minds are increasingly free, increasingly purified of these forces, there is a process that unfolds whereby we go through various stages of purification. And these are quite well mapped. Starting with purity of conduct, which is our attention or our commitment to sila, to non-harming. That takes a kind of mindfulness. If people are not mindful in their lives, they won't know what kinds of actions they're doing. So purity of conduct is the first stage of purity. Then this purity of mind, which I talked about earlier, that development of certain mental composure. Then purity of view, of seeing how it's just nama rupa. You know, that in any moment there's just knowing and an object, free of self. That's a deeper level of purification. This purity of overcoming doubt, where we see the cause and effect relationship. Purity of seeing what is the path and what is not the path. So, in response to the particular question, that particular stage of purification arises when our practice, the mindfulness, is quite strong. And we are feeling tremendous happiness, tremendous ease, very strong concentration, lots of rapture, where it's really wonderful. We're seeing the arising and passing away of phenomena so clearly. It's as if the mind has become like a crystal, you know, shining. It's, it's so uh, clear and radiant. This stage of purification is realizing, is understanding that none of those experiences are the path. So this is very critical because they are so amazingly seductive. It's like we've done all this work, you know, and struggled so much. And maybe we have you know, some experience of this incredible joy and ease and rapture and happiness. The, the great seduction is that we get attached to those states. And in fact, in the, in the text it's called pseudo-nirvana. You know, because people think, oh, now I've got it. Now this is it. And so seeing what's the path and not the path is realizing, no, these are still conditioned states. These are states that have come into being out of various conditions impermanent, like everything else. So this is a very critical juncture. 
because we could get stuck there a very long time. So we see, no, that's not the path. What is the path is being mindful of those states. Rapture, rapture, happiness, joy, brightness, ease. We're just noting. We keep noting, 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 seeing that those two are just part of the passing show of phenomena. Some guidance at those times is really helpful because it is very easy to just get into the enjoyment of them you know, and then get stuck there. Then when we see what is the path and not the path, we go through various insight stages of basically the refinement of our perception of change. You know, we're just seeing change on more and more refined and deeper levels. We go through dukkha stages, you know, of intense, intense dukkha, intense suffering. It's so interesting for all of us, I think. All of us want to have the insight into dukkha, into suffering, but without the suffering. <laughs> you know, as if, oh yeah, I know everything's suffering, <laughs> but we don't want to feel it. But why is it so important to go through that? Because the experience of the dukkha of conditioned phenomena deconditions in very deep way our attachment and our clinging. You know, when we really are feeling it and seeing it, the mind in a very deep place begins to let go, to come to the end of that grasping, of that clinging, of that craving. And so we go through that, those stages and we come to a place of great equanimity, which is again a place of ease. And then there can come the experience of opening to what the Buddha called the unconditioned. What does unconditioned mean? It means everything that has arisen, everything that has arisen, will cease. The nature of everything that arises will also pass away. Now Sariputta heard this before he met the Buddha. He had met just one, a wandering monk, one of the first arhants. And Sariputta was so impressed with the demeanor of the monk, he said, please teach me. And so the monk said, no, you should go see the Buddha, but Sariputta He wasn't called Sariputta then, but said, no, I I really have to know now. And so the monk said, whatever has the nature to arise must pass away. Sariputta became stream enterer at that point. Okay, so just... You have about five more minutes to think about this stuff. (laughs) Then it's delete. (laughs) but it's kind of interesting (laughs) everything that has the nature to arise passes away so the Buddha said actually let me read it there is bhikkhus an unborn an unmade and unformed. Now just think, 
everything in our experience is born. It comes into being, it's there, and it goes. What would that reality be of the unborn? Okay, they can kind of hold that as a koan. But it's very interesting. We live in the world of the born. We live in the world, our whole world, our whole existence, this whole universe is the universe of what comes into being. And whatever comes into being vanishes. That's the meaning of conditioned phenomena. So the Buddha is saying there is an unborn, an unmade, an unformed, an unconditioned. And so our practice brings us to that place of balance when quite spontaneously the mind can, the mind does, can open to that reality. Now this can happen in many different ways. Let me just go back a minute. That experience radically transforms one's relationship to the born, to what arises. Because we see, as the Buddha said, if because there were no unborn, unmade, unformed, no escape from what is born, made, or formed would be possible. But since there is an unborn, unmade, unformed, Therefore, escape from the born, made, formed is possible. You know, and so it changes our relationship to conditioned experience. We're still in it. The Buddha lived for 45 years after his enlightenment, totally engaged, active, interacting. Everything was there. But the mind was free of any clinging, free of any attachment. The mind can open to this in many different ways. You know, sometimes, as with Saraputta, he just heard a phrase. He just heard that phrase. Sometimes it could happen just spontaneously, you know, out in the world in various experiences. Maybe we're in nature or just we're in some experience and the mind gets very quiet and because of some past parami, you know, our mind opens to this transforming reality. And I've had quite a few people over the years come to me you know, and talk about this level of transformative experience that just happens spontaneously in their lives. You know, but because the conditions were right. For most people, it happens, I think, through the systematic development of the practice. And this is where the practice unfolds to. People experience it in many different ways. For some people, it is a, a radical change. It's like a lightning bolt happens. And for other people, they might not even know it happened. That's the range. So don't have a model, don't have an expectation. 
And that depends on the relative strength of the spiritual faculties. You know, faith and effort and concentration and mindfulness and wisdom, if those faculties are very strong, it's a very powerful moment. If the faculties are not so strong, it can be just something that is barely noticed but still has its effect. There's no one who can say with surety about another person's experience except the Buddha. You know, so... At one point, somebody came... No, actually, it's the Buddha who was speaking to Sariputta. He said, Sariputta, this is the Buddha speaking, the stream, the stream, what now, Sariputta, is the stream? Sariputta replied to the Buddha, the noble eightfold path is the stream. So the Buddha said, Sariputta, this is said, a stream enterer, a stream enterer. What now, Sariputta, is a stream enterer? So Sariputta replied, one who possesses the Noble Eightfold Path is a stream-enterer. So, in this particular model, using this language, it's really a question of whether we possess the Eightfold Path or whether we're just renting the Eightfold Path. <laughs> you know, is this something that, yeah, we kind of follow it, you know, sometimes and then at other times we don't, or is this really our life? Uh, so, I just want to finish up this little piece. Ananda, who was the Buddha's cousin and attendant, he would often go to the Buddha after people died, either monks or nuns or lay people, lay men or lay women, and he'd go to the Buddha and he said, "Well, where did that person go? You know, where were they reborn?" Or, What was their level of attainment? And I think the Buddha was getting a little, we won't say annoyed, but... (laughs) So, this is the Buddha's response to Ananda. It is not surprising, Ananda, that a human being should die. But if each time someone has died, you would approach and question me about the matter, this would be troublesome for me. Therefore, Ananda, I will teach you a Dhamma exposition called the Mirror of the Dhamma, through which a noble disciple, if he or she wishes, could declare, I am a stream-enterer, fixed in destiny, with enlightenment as my destination. Okay, so, what is the Mirror of the Dhamma? A noble disciple who possesses four things is a stream-enterer. Confirmed confidence in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, in the Sangha, who possesses virtues, sila, dear to the noble ones, unbroken, untorn, unblemished, freeing, praised by the wide, wise, ungrasped, leading to concentration. And then in another sutta, a noble disciple who possesses four things is a stream enterer. Confirmed confidence in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, in the Sangha. He or she dwells at home with a mind devoid of the stain of stinginess, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, one devoted to giving, delighting in giving and sharing, 
A noble disciple who possesses these four things is a stream enterer. So this is the mirror for us. You know, we really can see for ourselves are these, are we embodying these qualities or partially embodying them? Are we on the path to embodying them? Now the danger in talking about all this, and I realize there is one, is that the mind just starts spinning out. You know, and kind of stages and levels and this and that. It's not helpful to do that. I think the value simply is in knowing that this is a vast journey. It's not a question of a six-week retreat. It's not a question of a three-month retreat. And when we're really looking at this question of purification, purification of the heart from the forces of greed and the forces of aversion, the forces of delusion, this is huge. You know, and to spend a life or many lives on this path of purification, especially when we do it with that spirit of bodhicitta where we're doing it not for ourselves alone, but in order to benefit all beings. In understanding the vastness of it, in a certain way, the heart and mind can relax. You know, all of these models, these maps, they're useful simply in pointing out, yes, this is a well-trodden path. The Buddha called it the ancient royal path to Nibbana. You know, it's, it's timeless, and we're all walking on it. And there are milestones, you know. But whether we've walked 10 miles or 100 miles or 1,000 miles on a vast journey, it doesn't matter. The important thing is to be on the path and to keep walking. I think that's okay. Find the delete button. (laughs) Back to rising, falling, in and out. You know, one thing that's so just amazing about all this, the Buddhist teachings are so rich. I mean, just so incredibly rich. And it's his understanding of the nature of the mind, the nature of the body, the nature of life, how suffering is created, the many, countless skillful means to come out of the suffering. Uh, It's just this amazing, priceless jewel that we're connecting with. Um, And just for myself, it's, it's tremendously inspiring just to know to to see the richness of it all, and to let that inspire the practice. You know, you have this incredible opportunity. I mean, it's, it is literally so rare in the world where you have nothing to do except to walk on this path of purification. I mean, 
What a gift. So delight in it. Really delight in it. Through all the ups and downs and struggles. Uh, So thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.